One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. Hey guys, welcome back. We are moving into a new segment and a new priority in this functional hierarchy of health that we've been talking about. I want to do a, a quick reminder of where we are in that hierarchy and what we've already talked about. So the first and foremost thing, the most important thing for you to focus on when you're trying to get healthy is related to getting nutrients into your cells so that they have what they need to perform their assigned functions. And it doesn't matter whether we focus on brain cells or muscle cells or liver cells or thyroid cells, as we'll talk about today, the rule is the same. And that is perfusion is king. And perfusion simply means the passage of blood through your blood vessels to your cells for the express purpose of delivering nutrients and picking up cellular waste products generated by metabolism. And bottom line is, if you can't perfuse your tissues, then you're going to lose function globally to some extent. But notice that there are two aspects here. One is that you have to have the right nutrients in your bloodstream. And this speaks to things that show up later in the hierarchy of function, like your diet and how well your gut absorbs nutrients. But even before that, perfusion and blood flow and delivery of nutrients requires a few things, two things specifically. It requires adequate blood pressure and hydration. And if you compromise one or both of those, and they are interconnected, then even though you might have nutrients on board and available, your delivery system and capacity goes down. It's like having uh, products or goods to ship from a warehouse to a store, but you don't have a delivery truck, right? That's the same kind of problem. So the first priority in this functional hierarchy of health is the ability to get blood into your tissues, to have adequate nutrition held within your vascular system. And two of those key nutrients are oxygen and glucose. And tissue oxygenation is compromised with any form of anemia, with the most common ones being driven by different nutrient deficiencies, iron and B12 deficiencies specifically. And even though the most common person to get an iron deficiency anemia is a female of reproductive age with a menstrual cycle, it is possible for men to have iron deficiency too. Women lose a certain amount of iron during their cycle, and if that's not replaced with iron from their diet or in supplement form, then their total iron levels go down, they run the risk of becoming anemic, and then tissue oxygenation suffers. And this is important because the most abundant source of energy for cells to function comes from burning glucose as a fuel source in the presence of oxygen. And that's why we talk about oxygenation and glucose availability in the same conversation, because they're, again, intimately related. And so burning glucose in the presence of oxygen is what we call aerobic metabolism. So we need hydration, we need adequate blood pressure, we need adequate iron and B12 to carry oxygen from our lungs to our cells. 
The next part of this then is to ensure an adequate fuel source. And as I went through in more detail in the blood sugar segment of this mini series, we're, we're always bringing in some mixture of glucose and fat for fuel, but most people are running a carbohydrate dominant energy system. And we talked about things like low blood sugar and um, insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and this whole idea of what we call metabolic flexibility. The next priority then we talked about was cortisol and stress chemistry or what's commonly referred to as your adrenals. And, and while cortisol does many things, its basic function is to support blood sugar, especially during periods of fasting or stress. Uh, and relative to periods of fasting, we all fast when we're sleeping at night. So cortisol has a key role in energy metabolism, metabolism and cell function in that nocturnal period. In essence, these first three priorities in our hierarchy have everything to do with energy metabolism, having adequate fuel at the cellular level to drive human function. Now, after that, we talked in our last segment about the gut. We just finished it, so I'm not going to reiterate that. Uh, I'll, well, let me say this. I'll reiterate one thing, and that is your gut is a system of systems. It's a digestive, neurological, hormonal, and immunological system all wrapped up in into one. And so all three facets of the neuroendocrine immune super system exist in the gut, as I said, a system of systems. And that brings us to the next priority in this hierarchy of function, and that's your thyroid. <laughs> oh boy, that's a big one, right? It's a key, it's a keystone subsystem of this larger endocrine system, like endocrine meaning hormone. And we have many different hormones, right? We have thyroid hormones, we have uh, reproductive hormones like estrogen, testosterone, progesterone. We have protein-based hormones like thyroid, like insulin. So that's the larger endocrine system. But the thyroid as a subsystem of that is a keystone. And, and it's not that the thyroid is more important than other hormones. They're all important because they all serve specific roles. But since our first, our first priority seems to focus in and around having ample energy supply, the thyroid then takes center stage because it's basically, it hits the on switch that drives the energy making machinery. Now understand that your thyroid system doesn't operate in isolation. No system, no organ, gland, or hormone does. And I'm, I'm very vocal about making sure that the first thing you understand about your thyroid is that it is a system, it's not just a gland. You'll hear me say that over and over and over again. But before I get into that, let me share one example of how thyroid hormones work with other hormones to create foundational function. It's well known that thyroid hormone balance is required to activate your mitochondria. You know, I'm sure you've heard that word before, but basically mitochondria are tiny little energy factories inside your cells that take oxygen and glucose or some other fuel source and create energy. That's what the mitochondria does. And so we need thyroid hormones to turn on your mitochondria. So you can have oxygen, you can have glucose or fat as a fuel source, but if you don't have adequate thyroid hormones, the machine doesn't run efficiently. And you know, we can play that and twist that around and say, okay, well, I might have thyroid hormone sufficiency, but maybe I don't have enough oxygenation. We're still going to impair energy production. Think of, um, as it relates to the thyroid kind of turning on this energy machinery, think of a, a plant manager who's the only one who has the key that turns on the big 
widget making machine in a manufacturing facility. And, and if that manager, he or she doesn't show up to turn the machine on and nobody else can turn the machine on, then nobody makes any widgets. The plant doesn't produce. And I mean plant not as in a, like a flower or vegetation. I mean a plant is in a manu manufacturing facility. So basically thyroid hormones turn on your energy making capacity, which is why things like Hashimoto's hypothyroidism result in fatigue, almost invariably. You simply can't make enough energy to function optimally if your thyroid hormones are too low or if something goes wrong with that energy, energy making process. And to say it simply, your thyroid hormone status determines your metabolic rate. And for that reason alone, it's a keystone hormone. Keystone hormone. But it's more complicated than that, of course, because as I said a moment ago, thyroid hormones don't function in a vacuum. There was a study published back in 2008 from the journal called Science Signaling that showed that one of the ways that thyroid hormones affect your energy producing mitochondria is by increasing or upregulating the density or the population of estrogen receptors in the mitochondria. And that it's actually the combination of thyroid and estrogen together that control things like making new mitochondria or cleaning out damaged and dysfunctional ones. In clinical parlance, we would say that thyroid and estrogen work together to control mitochondrial biogenesis and mitophagy. That's cleaning out the damaged and defective ones. Now, from a very big picture perspective, thyroid conditions are more common in women than men. Your thyroid, again, is a system, not just a gland, and thyroid hormones don't work in isolation. They affect and are affected by many other things. And the vast majority of thyroid conditions are caused by an underlying autoimmune reaction called Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, which I mentioned just a moment ago. So I think what I'll do is, is do a top-level review of those last two points. And if you want more details, you can go back to the thyroid mini-series that I did last year. Just search the podcast using the word thyroid, and you'll find that. So first off, let's talk about the thyroid system. I can guarantee you that when you go to see your medical doctor either a GP, maybe an endocrinologist, that the main focus is going to be on one thing, and that's the amount of T4 hormone coming out of your thyroid gland. And admittedly, that is an important thing to look at, but it's one piece of a much more complicated system. And if that's all that you or your doctor look at, then you're going to miss a lot of potential problems and solutions. So let me walk you through this very quickly. Your thyroid gland sits in the middle of your thyroid system, which actually starts in a part of your brain called the hypothalamus. And this is where you have a collection of neurons that are responsible for monitoring your thyroid hormone levels and making decisions about whether or not you need to make more or less. That means if your thyroid system is working properly, that it's always monitoring and always adjusting hormone production to keep things humming along. But when things don't work well, the question becomes where in the overall design of the system is it starting to break down? So it starts in the brain, your hypothalamus transmits a hormonal signal to your thyroid gland that says either make more or make less. It's quite, it's, it really is that simple. Now, if the signal is to make more, then the gland's internal machinery gets to work trapping iodine from your bloodstream and weaving that together with some proteins and using an enzyme that results in some quantity of T4 hormone production. 
And under most circumstances, I might not break that down into more detail, but you need to know that there are different versions of thyroid hormones, some of which are biologically active and capable of increasing function on their own, some of which are biologically inactive and either neutral or inert, or in some cases actually capable of decreasing function. And the key here is to know that the majority of what your thyroid gland makes on instructions from your hypothalamus is this inactive T4 version. And the four in T4 simply refers to how many iodine molecules are attached to it. But that extra iodine, T4 as opposed to, for example, T3, that extra iodine in the T4 means that it can't actually engage with your thyroid receptors and can't really do much of anything, which is why we call it biologically inactive. And in order for this inactive T4 to become biologically active, it has to lose one of those iodines to become T3. So it goes from T4 to T3. It comes, goes from inactive to active. And that conversion happens predominantly in the liver, which makes a special enzyme called the deiodinase. Can't get that out. Um, and that's what does the job of converting T4 into T3. So first, your brain has to signal to your thyroid gland to make T4 hormones. And once that T4 is placed into circulation, your, your liver needs to make an enzyme that plucks off one iodine from the T4 to convert it into this active T3 version. And this active T3 is what does all the work at the cellular level to make stuff happen, stuff like energy production or working with estrogen to drive the creation of these new energy factories, new mitochondria, which are capable of making more energy. But part of the problem here is that the liver, as the liver is converting T4 into active T3, it also converts part of that T4, this original T4, into another inactive form called reverse T3. It's a complicated process affected by things like systemic inflammation or stress chemistry or even lack of key nutrients like iron or selenium. But the downside of making this reverse T3 is that it fights against the T3 at the cellular level. Remember, T3 is active, does all the work. Reverse T3 is inactive and it fights against the T3 level. It's like a tug of war between two hormones one that wants to turn everything on and one that wants to turn everything off. And depending on which version of T3 is winning at any given moment determines if your thyroid hormone activation of your cells falls on the activation side or on the inhibitory side where it's not doing what it should. Now, if you're a practitioner listening to this, there are other things involved. There's more steps, more details for you to know and master clinically if you're going to manage clients with thyroid issues like I do. So first of all, if you're a practitioner, thanks for listening. You might want to check out my other podcast, which is designed for practitioners. That podcast is called Funk Med Nation. You can just search that on your favorite podcast uh, provider. Um, it would be honor my honor to have you join me over there as well. So that's a very quick flyover of the thyroid system. One part is responsible for producing thyroid hormones. That's the connection between your brain and your thyroid gland. Another part is responsible for processing thyroid hormones once T4 is put into circulation. 
so that what is produced gets processed into some balance between active and inactive T3 or T3 and reverse T3. And the final part of the system is how your cells respond to your thyroid hormones as those hormones plug into thyroid hormone receptors plus any other synergistic relationships that the thyroid has with other hormones. And one example is that cooperative effort between thyroid and estrogen uh, as they work to support the mitochondria that I mentioned earlier. It's a great example of this or one type of synergistic relationship between thyroid and other things. Now, the last big picture thing I want to cover today is an overview of Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. I think I've mentioned it twice as we've been going through this episode. The first thing that you need to know is that medical research confirms that almost 100% of thyroid disorders are autoimmune in nature. The estimates vary anywhere from 90 to 98%, but we may as well say almost all thyroid conditions are autoimmune. In other words, when someone has either low or high thyroid function, the root cause is typically dysfunction and imbalance within the immune system. The second thing to know is that between low and high thyroid disorders, low thyroid problems are way more common than high thyroid, right? To use technical terms, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, which is an autoimmune low thyroid condition, is far more common than Graves' disease, which is an autoimmune high thyroid condition. And to complicate things, people with Graves' disease or autoimmune hyperthyroidism often slip into autoimmune hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's once they get treated for their Graves' disease. And it's not like the medical community doesn't know that autoimmunity is the root cause. It's part of their basic training. But not caring looks an awful lot like not knowing. I guess we could flip that around and say not knowing looks an awful lot like not caring. But what I mean by this is that medical doctors, by and large, don't care if you have Hashimoto's as the cause of your hypothyroidism, because it doesn't change what they're going to do. They're going to prescribe synthetic T4 hormones, whether they check you for Hashimoto's or not. In fact, I just did a consultation with a new client a few days ago who's a, a registered nurse who now owns her own business. She has hypothyroidism, had it for seven years, I believe. Um, she's never been checked for Hashimoto's. And, and that's the first thing that we need to try to define for her, because if she does have Hashimoto's, it will change how we approach her case and helping her get better. Because at that point, once we know someone has Hashimoto's, everything becomes about her immune system. It's not so much about the thyroid gland, specifically not so much about the perfect medication or dosage, even though that's part of the process. There's a bigger game to play. You know what her endocrinologist said when, when she asked her, she asked her, like, do I have Hashimoto's? And the endocrinologist said, maybe, kind of shrugged her shoulders. But she never ordered labs to check. And the reason she gave was exactly what I just said a second ago. And this is almost a direct quote, as my client said this to me, if you have it, it won't change how I treat you. That's the way the medical community works with this particular problem. Now, I, and I hear this over and over again, talking to new clients about their history with other doctors. Understand that as a functional medicine doc coming from a chiropractic background, I do not have the ability to prescribe medications. I don't tell people to take or not take medications, but I can educate them so that they can have intelligent conversations, reasonable conversations with 
the doctors that are prescribing medications for them. I can help them ask the right questions so that they get the right answers and can then make intelligent decisions. So here, let me pull back and, and make a couple of big picture statements. First of all, again, <laughs> thyroid is a system. It's not just a gland. And it's not just your TSH and your T4 on your labs. It's much more complicated than that. It's the communication between your brain, your thyroid gland, the role of your liver in processing thyroid hormones into their active form, which gives you some potential to drive cellular function, which is the most basic physiological function. Second, most thyroid conditions affect middle-aged women, and more than 90% of the time, the root cause is autoimmunity. And there are more cases of Hashimoto's and Graves' disease, and even a portion of people with Graves' disease morph into Hashimoto's after they get medical treatment for Graves, which, by the way, is required. If you have Graves' disease and you've not seen or are not seeing a medical doctor, you need to be doing that. And I want to clarify there. Like, I'm certainly not saying that some people with Graves eventually get Hashimoto's because their MD did something wrong. It is the natural course of things for some people with Graves' disease to evolve into Hashimoto's. And untreated Graves' disease is very serious. It's a very serious medical condition that increases the chance of death from things like stroke. It is no joke. And if you have Graves, you must be under medical care, period. The issue at hand for someone who has Graves' is that they don't just have Graves, the, the Graves autoimmune process, which we confirm by finding specific thyroid antibodies associated with Graves' disease. But lurking in the background, we also find the antibodies associated with Hashimoto's disease. So they, they start with Graves' disease, they get treated for that, which is, again, absolutely necessary, and they end up with Hashimoto's. <laughs> it's not the fault of conventional medicine, it's just the nature of Graves' disease by itself. And when you consider the numbers, thyroid conditions, again, are largely about Hashimoto's hypothyroidism in middle-aged women. But that doesn't mean Graves' disease isn't a problem. It's just far less common. And it doesn't mean that Hashimoto's affects only middle-aged women. And so I want you to consider this. A woman might get diagnosed with low thyroid and put on medications in her middle age. But her underlying autoimmunity gets missed or ignored which means that middle-aged woman becomes an older woman with a longer history of largely unresolved thyroid symptoms because taking medication is only part of the process and no one's been helping her control her immune system. Furthermore, while women get Hashimoto's hypothyroidism far more commonly than men, men can still get it, and the stakes are exactly the same. It affects them the same way. But honestly, it's, it's easier to stabilize and control Hashimoto's in a man because their other hormonal systems are less complicated than a female's, which brings up this idea of systems integration again. So let's say that we have two women of the same age, both with Hashimoto's, and if one of those woman, women has hormonal imbalances, she's going to have a harder time stabilizing compared to the woman with hormones or the woman who has hormones that are stable and balanced because the hormonal and immune systems affect each other. And finally, even in, and it's terrible to say this, but it used to be that we only had to worry about middle-aged men and women and older when it came to Hashimoto's. But in the last 15 years or so, it's not just the middle-aged women 
but older women and men and even children who are getting autoimmune thyroid conditions. And the youngest person that I've personally diagnosed with an active Hashimoto's problem was 11 years old. The world has changed. The landscape has changed. And, and as we continue to mess up our food supply and introduce more chemicals into our environment that have the capacity to disrupt endocrine systems or hormonal systems, and as we've seen radical changes to our lifestyles at sociological levels, where we, for example, take out physical education in the schools and, and oh, don't get me started on all this stuff. <laughs> but as we've changed all this stuff, the rates of autoimmune diseases have skyrocketed. In fact, rates of Hashimoto's are going up by about 10% every decade. And so we're talking millions of people each year are getting diagnosed with Hashimoto's disease and being told predominantly that all they need to do is take their Synthroid or Levothyroxine and they'll be fine, but that's not true. Most of them, about 80% will get synthetic medications and they're going to be left to wonder why they still have unresolved symptoms, even though they're on medication and even though their labs might be technically normal. And if you're listening on a podcast and not watching on YouTube, I'm using air quotes around the word normal. It's a frustrating mess, to be honest, on the clinical side as well, because there's so much misinformation and poor, poor knowledge and direction. Well, why is it so bad? Why is it getting worse? Well, it, again, it's complicated, but we can say one thing for sure, that the inflammation associated with autoimmune reactivity messes with the entire thyroid system from the production process to the processing into active hormones, as well as the ability of your cells to re respond appropriately, even though you might have enough thyroid hormones in circulation. So I'll say it again, at the end of the day, thyroid hormone function is about cellular activation. And if we can't adequately turn on cellular processes, we can't function at an optimal level. And for this reason, thyroid is a key part of our functional hierarchy of health. All right, guys, that's it for today. More cool stuff coming about your thyroid system in the next episode. Thanks for listening.